The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Hello, and welcome to Quarterly Updates, where our active portfolio managers share their thoughts on the markets and their funds. I'm John Cavolis, an investment strategist here at Natixis. Today, I'm joined by Gretchen Amidon, an investment director of the Loomis Sales Global Allocation Fund. The fund has posted strong annualized returns over the past 5, 10, and 15-year periods and continues to rank within the top quartile of Morningstar's world allocation category. Gretchen, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So to kick us off, um, I think it would be great if we could revisit the fourth quarter. So the fourth quarter was another strong um, performance period for the strategy. Would you mind walking us through the top contributors and detractors for the global allocation portfolio? Sure, I'm happy to. So on the equity side, the two positions that contributed most to performance were S&P Global and Atlas Copco. I think that S&P Global is probably well known for its rating and indices business. It also offers a financial data business, so research and analytical tools, uh, which it sells to asset managers and other financial institutions. Its shares were up after the company announced its earnings. Uh, Their results beat expectations, and the company raised revenue guidance for its rating segment. We also saw strong bond issuance uh, in December, and that also likely supported shares. For Atlas Copco, their shares outperformed as a company continues to execute well across its end markets. The majority of Atlas's businesses center around compression and vacuum technologies, so they are offering critically important tools to their customers used in areas like semiconductor production. On the fixed income side, yield curve exposure was a top contributor to performance, in particular allocations to the U.S. dollar, euro, and Mexican peso pay markets contributed to performance. Credit positioning also helped. Uh, In particular, it was the allocations to both consumer cyclical and non-cyclical, as well as finance company sectors. Holdings of Uber, Norwegian Cruise Lines, Teladoc Health, and specialty finance company Rock Holdings were some of the top performers within those sectors. If we look at the detractors in equities, the two largest detractors were Airbnb and Zions Bank. Airbnb shares were weak. In part, it was driven by the headlines around the passage of a law in New York City that could reduce their inventory. Concerns about the health of the consumer and the associated travel spend also weighed on shares. We did see shares start to rebound a bit in November as the consumer outlook brightened on expectations for for lower rates, but all in all, it was uh, one of the larger contributors in the period. Zions Bank is a regional bank. It's a has a client base dominated by SMEs or small to medium-sized businesses in the Western U.S., uh, a significant market share in Utah in particular. The shares underperformed along with most of the banking sector after third quarter earnings were released in October. Uh, the concerns really centered around two things. One was high-yield bonds driving unrealized losses on securities, uh, and then the potential for increased provisions uh, for credit losses due to higher for longer interest rates. 
We did eliminate our position in Zions simply because we were finding more attractive opportunities elsewhere. In fixed income, although credit positioning as a whole, as I mentioned, contributed to performance during the period, the allocation specifically to the technology sector modestly detracted from performance. And then similarly, although currency allocation overall, again, contributed to performance, uh, the allocation to the Colombian peso uh, did detract as that currency lost ground against the USD in the period. That was great, kind of walking through some of the names that were drivers of the portfolio. If we could turn our attention to the current portfolio allocation, what does that current asset allocation look like? And were there any changes worth mentioning during the fourth quarter? Sure. No, actually, we were consistent. We did not make any allocation changes during the quarter. So that leaves, as just as a reminder, the current allocation of the fund at 68% in global equities, 17% in non-U.S. fixed income, and the balance 15% in U.S. fixed income. And so if there weren't any changes in the high-level asset allocation, were there any changes to the geographic allocations within the fund? How has that looked today, or has that changed over the past uh, quarter? Sure. So no, I'd say that that has not meaningfully changed either. So right now, we're just over 70% in North America, about 15% in Europe, just under 10% in emerging markets. Uh, and then 5% in developed Asia. And that's simply the result of our bottom-up process. And tying into the bottom-up process, did the team initiate any new positions during the quarter? If so, could you potentially give us some color on those new names? Sure. So we did establish on the equity side a position in Veralto uh, that was created from the spinoff of Donaher's Environmental and Applied Solutions Division. So Donaher is a company that we've owned in the portfolio for quite some time. Veralta has really two segments. One is water quality and the other is product quality and innovation. Uh, what we like about the name is that the products are often mission critical, which gives the company significant pricing power. The company has a number one position in several attractive areas, for example, water analysis. Uh, it's about four times larger than, it's, than the next vendor. Uh, and that scale advantage means it can out-invest most competitors. On the fixed income side, we did add new issue and secondary shares of Glencore's 2033 maturity bonds. I think Glencore is, is a, a well-known name as a global diversified natural resources company. Uh, we do expect credit fundamentals to remain solid in 2024 for mining companies. We also purchased secondary shares of Broadcom's 2033 maturity bond as well. And in order to fund these exciting new positions, did the team have to move on or sell any securities during the quarter? We did eliminate Zion's bank, as I, as I mentioned. And then on the fixed income side, uh, we did reduce our exposure to Occidental Petroleum, uh, Pemex, as well as TSMC Arizona. Uh, so all of those sales were, were done in order to build liquidity for the portfolio. That's great. And potentially kind of turning our focus towards uh, 2024, are there any opportunities within equities that you're particularly excited about and are following closely? And how are you currently positioned within fixed income? And are there any interesting opportunities within that space right now? 
Sure. Yeah, I would say that the overall complexion or positioning of the portfolio has not meaningfully changed. So we continue to like opportunities in technology. We have names uh, spanning semiconductor manufacturing and equipment, software, and consulting companies. Uh, We also continue to be fairly selective when it comes to consumer names. So what we look for is consumer names that are uniquely positioned. So companies that have strong brands with direct-to-consumer opportunities or physical retailers that we believe have a differentiated value offering. In financials, we continue to have holdings that we believe have leading market positions, and that's in retail and commercial banking. Uh, We're also uh, exposed to payment processing, uh, asset management, and investment banking. Within the industrials sector, we focus on companies that have, we believe, have strong pricing power uh, by offering critical components. So we just spoke about a couple of those those names. Uh, and then within healthcare, we're also fairly selective. So we're focused there on companies uh, that have services and products that are geared towards higher growth areas uh, where there's greater revenue visibility and we believe manageable reimbursement risk. On the fixed income side, we continue to believe there will be a slowdown in 2024. Uh, We have seen excess household savings in the U.S. decline, and the effects of the rate tightening cycle continue to work through global economies. We believe Europe is already in somewhat of a recession. We're seeing Germany, France, and Italy with the lowest PMIs globally. Uh, And then in the UK, the outlook uh, remains challenging. So within that environment, we continue to be shorter duration than the benchmark. Uh, The composition of the duration underweight euro, British pound sterling, and Japanese yen while remaining longer USD duration. Generally speaking, we continue to believe spreads are too tight and the risk-reward trade-off does not currently warrant adding risk. I'd say our allocations are focused more on defensive sectors, and with regard to emerging markets specifically, we prefer select local emerging markets where there are higher real yields and exports uh, persist as, as global trade continues and commodity prices remain elevated. Would you mind spending a few minutes walking through the team's macro outlook for 2024? Um, If you could highlight the base case for interest rates, inflation, U.S. dollar, I think that'd be extremely helpful for the listeners. Sure, happy to. So if we start with interest rates, uh, we've certainly seen inflation rates well off their highs in both developed and emerging economies. Uh, So we do anticipate that most global central banks are at the end of their rate hiking cycles. The pace, however, at which inflation continues to decelerate from here will likely dictate how much central banks are able to to cut rates. Uh, We believe that there's going to be six rate cuts uh, of varying degrees, so it depends on sort of which which of our scenarios we're we're looking at. Uh, And then uh, looking outside the U.S., the Bank of England. Uh, appears to be on hold, although we believe there does remain a risk of further rate hikes given indications of uh, continuing inflation uh, in the UK. The ECB seems content to hold policy rates near their current levels despite uh, wage and employment indicators.
If we look at the dollar, uh, we have seen some recent weakness, but we continue to be cautious, uh, broadly speaking, on foreign exchange or, or, or non-U.S. dollar, uh, given our view of the credit cycle and, and softer global growth generally. Uh, with respect to the dollar, we've, we have seen some recent weakness, but we continue to be cautious uh, on broad foreign exchange or specifically non-U.S. dollar, uh, given our view of the credit cycle and softer global growth. We think that the dollar could continue to weaken in the early part of the year on a less hawkish Fed, but do think it would benefit from a, a flight to quality uh, in, a, in a downturn. And then if we touch on inflation, uh, we do believe we are past peak inflation in major developed economies like the U.S. and Europe, uh, again, but that pace of deceleration does remain a, a question. Uh, nevertheless, we do expect inflation to continue easing throughout the year as economic growth trends lower, uh, and that would give central banks room to, to cut, rate if, cut rates if needed. And then just lastly, I'll touch on GDP. A consensus global growth forecast gradually improved since the beginning of the year as many economies continue to demonstrate resilience versus previous expectations. If we look at GDP, consensus global growth forecast gradually improved since the beginning of the year as many economies continue to, to demonstrate resilience versus previous expectations. Uh, in the U.S., we're currently forecasting GDP growth of 1.2 percent for 2024, uh, and that is slightly less optimistic than consensus estimates. Uh, consumption has continued to be a driver of growth as consumer balance sheets have been resilient in, in, in aggregate. Nonetheless, we are seeing signs of deterioration uh, with respect to excess household savings being depleted uh, and, and delinquency rates on the rise. Great. Thank you, Gretchen. I think that's all the questions I have today. Is there anything else you'd like to add or think I missed? Just a brief reminder in terms of our, our process. So for us, this is a best ideas strategy across the capital structure. In equities, we're investing only in our best ideas. So we have about 40 stocks in this portfolio. And we combine that with fixed income exposure, which we think of very much as an alpha driver. And the creation of the portfolio is driven from a bottom up. So those capital allocation shifts uh, that we were discussing is driven solely based on where we're finding the best ideas. Well, again, thank you, Gretchen, for all of your insights today. This is extremely helpful for all the listeners. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time and look forward to talking to you again next quarter. Important information. Standard performance as a percentage for Loomis Sales Global Allocation Fund Class Y shares as of December 31st, 2023. Three months, 12.19%. Year to date, 22.43%. One year, 22.43%. Three years, 2.52%. Five years, 9.53%. 10 years, 7.26%. 30 day SEC yield. Y. Subsidized equals 1.67%. 30 day SEC yield. Y. Unsubsidized equals 1.67%. Performance data listed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results. Total return and value will vary, and you may have a gain or loss when shares are sold. Current performance may be lower or higher than quoted. For most recent month-end performance, 
visit im.natixis.com. Performance for other share classes will be greater or less than shown based on differences in fees and sales charges. Performance for periods less than one year is cumulative, not annualized. Returns reflect changes in share price and reinvestment of dividends and capital gains, if any. Top 10 holdings for the Loomis Sales Global Allocation Fund as of December 31, 2023. S&P Global, Inc. 3.5% of Portfolio, Amazon.com, Inc. 3.4% of Portfolio, Alphabet, Inc. Class A, 3.0% of Portfolio, Lind PLC, 2.8% of Portfolio, Atlas Coco AB, Class A, 2.8% of Portfolio, MasterCard, Inc. Class A, 2.8% of Portfolio, United Health Group, Inc. 2.5% of Portfolio, Airbnb, Inc. Class A, 2.3% of Portfolio, Home Depot, Inc. 2.3% of Portfolio, Accenture PLC, Class A, 2.2% of Portfolio, Gross and Net Expense Ratios for Class Y of the Fund are 0.89% and 0.89%, respectively, as of the most recent prospectus, the investment advisor has contractually agreed to waive fees and or reimburse expenses, with certain exceptions once the expense cap of the fund has been exceeded. This arrangement is set to expire on January 31, 2025, when an expense cap has not been exceeded. The gross and net expense ratios and or yields may be the same. S&P 500 index is a widely recognized measure of U.S. stock market performance. It is an unmanaged index of 500 common stocks chosen for market size, liquidity, and industry group representation, among other factors. It also measures the performance of the large cap segment of the U.S. equities market, EBITDA, or earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization is a measure of a company's overall financial performance and is used as an alternative to net income in some circumstances. The European Central Bank, ECB, is the central bank responsible for monetary policy of those European Union EU, member countries which have adopted the euro currency. This region is known as the Eurozone and currently comprises 19 members. The Bank of England BOE, is the central bank for the United Kingdom. Equity securities are volatile and can decline significantly in response to broad market and economic conditions. Fixed income securities may carry one or more of the following risks. Credit, interest rate, as interest rates rise bond prices usually fall, inflation and liquidity, foreign and emerging market securities may be subject to greater political, economic, environmental, credit, currency and information risks. Foreign securities may be subject to higher volatility than U.S. securities, due to varying degrees of regulation and limited liquidity. These risks are magnified in emerging markets. Below investment-grade fixed-income securities may be subject to greater risks, including the risk of default, than other fixed-income securities. Currency exchange rates between the U.S. dollar and foreign currencies may cause the value of the fund's investments to decline. Investment-grade refers to bonds rated BBBBAA or higher. Ratings are determined by third-party rating agencies such as Standard & Poor's or Moody's and are an indication of a bond's credit quality. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit im.natixis.com or call 800-862-4863 for a prospectus or a summary prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully. This material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. The views and opinions expressed are as of January, 2024, and may change based on market and other conditions. Natixis Distribution, LLC is a limited-purpose broker-dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers, Natixis Distribution, LLC, Fund Distributor, Member FINRA, SIPC, and Loomis, Sales and Company, LLC are affiliated, POD 117, December, 2023, Ad Tracks, 2100702, 24, 1, Expiration Date, April 30, 2024.